Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. I got a question for you. Have you ever heard of the phrase, what goes around comes around? You know, this idea that you're, you're going to reap one day what you sow. You know, if you, if you treat people badly one day, it's going to come back on you. That, that concept, I think it's real, it's real well known. Most of you have heard it before, but I, I think it's actually a lot more true than you even realize. Now, now, we think about this concept in a lot of different ways in society. And there's a lot of people who think about, even within the church, by the way, this, this idea of karma. You know, this, this, you do something and karma is going to get you and bring it back upon you. It's interesting. I hear it spoken about even in the church because of what karma is. If you know anything about it, it's actually a, a Hindu and Buddhist thought that when you are reincarnated, how you live this life will affect what you're reincarnated as. So it's not a Christian ideology at all. So if you're going to use the, the word karma, make sure you know what it means. But people think about it this way. There's karma in the world or, or they think about fate. You know, one day fate's going to come out to get you or irony or or on the more religious side, some people might think of divine justice or divine retribution. I mean, whatever you conceptualize it as, this idea of what goes around comes around is something you either love or hate, depending on whether you've been offended or you are the offender. So if, if you've been offended before, you love this idea of what goes around comes around. You want divine justice. M- makes me think of the movie, The Christmas Story. I don't know if you've seen that movie before, but one of my favorites, there's this, this bully in the show, in the movie, his name is Scut Farkas, like the worst name ever, right? And this bully, Scut Farkas, just always beating up the other kids and pushing them around and stuff like that until one day, Scut Farkas decides he's going to pick on Ralphie and his friends and Ralphie just snaps and then just starts beating the snot out of Scut Farkas and he's just weaving a tapestry of obscenities while he's smacking into this kid until finally Ralphie's mom gets there and pulls him off and Scut Farkas sits up and there's blood going down his nose and people are gawking and pointing and, and the craziest part is you don't feel the least bad for Scut Farkas because you're just going, man, you're getting what you deserve. What goes around comes around. You're getting justice. You don't feel bad for them because you want the offended party to have justice. Well, we, we love what goes around, comes around idea when we've been offended, but we don't like it when we're the offender. When, we done, when we've done what's wrong, oftentimes that scares the fire out of us to think that one day retribution will come back on us. In fact, I think there are many of you watching this right now. And you live in fear because you know one day the bad decisions you've made, the mistakes you've made, the things you've done wrong are going to come back and bite you. You know, you're just waiting for it. You know they're haunting you right now and you're just waiting for the hammer to drop. And it it scares the fire out of you to think of what's going to happen to you because of all the wrong that you've done. Which, by the way, I think it's appropriate to be afraid. I just think maybe you're afraid for the wrong reasons. Too often when we've done wrong, we're afraid that something's going to get us. But we think about it like some impersonal force out in the universe. And this force is going to come back and, and do us like we've done everybody else and hurt us like we've hurt other people. But it's actually a whole lot worse than some impersonal force. When, when you and I live in rebellion, when you and I are selfish in our actions, when we do all this wrong, what the Bible calls sin, we don't just tick off some impersonal force out in the universe. We tick off the God who created the universe. I mean, the Bible tells us that sin actually makes us enemies of Almighty God himself, and we should be terribly afraid to find out that we're enemies of God. So absolutely, sin will one day come back to bite us, and we need to know it because something has to be done about it otherwise. Now, the good news of this book is that there is something that's been done about our sin problem, and we're going to find out what that is today as we dig into the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 42. So go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. 
book of Genesis, chapter 42. Now, I know we always have guests joining with us. I want to remind you of what we've covered on this sermon series called Living the Dream. It goes all the way back to Genesis 37. So Joseph, the main character of this sermon series, has had some dreams about how his brothers were going to bow down to him. And his, this guy Joseph, the favorite of his father, Jacob, he is always treated better and his brothers get jealous. He has the dreams. His brothers get so jealous, they decide to try to kill him. So they rip off his coat of many colors. They throw him into a pit to kill him, only to pull him out to sell him to some Ishmaelites to be a slave in the land of Egypt. And that's actually the last time that Joseph sees his brothers before this moment, some 20 years before the passage we're going to read this morning. They didn't actually depart on the friendliest of terms the last time they met, so it's going to be tense when they come back together again. Now, last week, we heard about what God did as he divinely orchestrated events and allowed Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream, which landed Joseph the second highest position in the entire land of Egypt. It's an incredibly high position where he was over the granaries to provide food during a time of famine. And that's when we reconnect with Genesis 42. So with all that context in your mind, let's read what it says. Verse 1. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, now stop there just for a moment. So it says that there's famine now that's reached the land of Canaan. It's spread beyond Egypt. It's covering the whole land now, all the other lands around. And they're coming to Egypt to buy grain. If you remember from last week, because Joseph was wise enough to know there would be seven years of plenty, stored a whole bunch of grain for seven years of famine. Now, what you can see in this is that God is obviously divinely orchestrating everything so that Joseph would have to re-engage his brothers again after two decades. That's about to happen. But there's a little detail in there that's really important that you might have missed. And it's that one brother didn't go with them to Egypt. And that brother was Benjamin. And the reason why was because Jacob, whose name is also Israel, wouldn't let Benjamin go. Now, if you've forgotten who Benjamin is, Benjamin is the only full brother of Joseph. All the other brothers are half-brothers, but Rachel, which is Jacob's favorite wife, had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And what you see from this is that Jacob is still favoring Rachel's sons. And before, he favored Joseph. Now Joseph is gone. He thinks Joseph is dead. Now he's showing favoritism to Benjamin. Apparently, Jacob isn't learning because that's what got Joseph in the trouble the first time, but now he's doing the exact same thing to Benjamin. Now, that detail is going to be important in a little bit. But now let's get back to the story. Let's see what happens when they meet up for the first time after two decades. Verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you were spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. 
and he put them all together in custody for three days. Now stop there. So they have this encounter, mind you, 20 years of not seeing each other, having departed on the worst of terms. And now the brothers come before Joseph. And the first thing they do is fulfill the dream he had two decades before. And they bow down before their brother Joseph. What's crazy is they don't even realize that they're fulfilling that dream. They had did everything they could to stop that dream from coming true. That's why they were going to kill him. That's why they sold him as a slave so they would never have to bow down to him. And here they are bowing down to him and they don't even realize they're fulfilling God's purpose because they don't realize this is their brother Joseph. Now, maybe when you hear that, you're going, well, how do they not recognize their own brother? And it says Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize Joseph. Well, a few details will help you understand why. First of all, he's 20 years older at least. And, and trust me, you look different when you age 20 years. On top of that, he is dressed in some very regal Egyptian garb. He likely has Egyptian eye makeup on that they wore back then. And you'll find out later, he's not speaking to them in Hebrew. He's speaking to them in Egyptian. He's using an interpreter. Even though he doesn't need one, he's using an interpreter so that they won't know who he is. But the biggest reason why they don't recognize Joseph is because the last place they expected to see their brother they sold into slavery was the second highest in the land of Egypt. Man, they couldn't possibly dream that Joseph would come to this position so quickly. They had no concept of it, and yet here they are bowing down to the very brother they tried so hard not to bow down to. It just reminds me of God's providence. By the way, if you don't know this, God is going to do what he wills, and ain't nobody going to stop his will. We can try to stop it. We may not even be aware of his will, but his will will always go on. That's exactly what's taking place here. But what I love about this story is, is how cool Joseph plays it. I mean, he doesn't let on at all that he knows this is his brother. He doesn't let them, he didn't go like, ah, I told you you were going to bow down to me. I mean, he, doesn't, he doesn't even let on that he's related to them. Plays it totally cool. He, he doesn't just treat them like strangers. It says that he treats them like enemies, calls them spies, says you're here to see the nakedness of the land, which means you're trying to spy out all the vulnerable places in the land. He's accusing them of having done wrong, to which they buck up and go, no, 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 that's, that's not true of us. We're, we're not that. Now, I'm, I'm always really curious, and I think we need to stop and do this. I mentioned this last week as well. I'm really curious about what's going on in the mind of these biblical characters. I think we can read over this and not stop and think how Joseph is feeling in this moment, Seeing his brothers after 20 years, knowing the last time he saw them, they had, he had, they had sold him into slavery. Now here he is watching them. And I'm sure there was this whole slew of emotions he was feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm sure part of what he was feeling was, was a little bit of, of resentment, or maybe a lot of resentment, that these are the guys who said this dream wouldn't happen, and here it is, finally happening. I'm sure there was some sense of validation. Like, see, I told you this would happen. I'm sure there's a sense of pride inside of him. You know, like, I'm, I look at me standing all tall and regal while you guys are having to bow down. But most of all, I know he's feeling, he's dealing with the trauma inside of him. Because remember, the last time he saw him, he was beaten, he was stripped, he was almost killed, he was sold into a, as a slave. That's the deepest trauma anybody could possibly experience. And let me go ahead and tell you, trauma doesn't just go away. If somebody's endured trauma, the only way to overcome it is intense counseling and you work through it. And Joseph didn't have a counselor. He'd been in prison most of the time or a slave most of the time. He's never dealt with his trauma. So now he sees his brothers. It's all rushing upon him. And I'm sure he's overwhelmed by it. And I'll bet you in verse 11, when these brothers said, we are honest men, I'll bet you that ticked off Joseph. He's like, really? Honest men? So, so let's go ahead and review your lives now. So that time when you beat me up and, and stripped off my multicolored robe, you're telling me you were honest? That time you threw me in the pit and left me for dead, is that what you call honesty? 
Or how about that time you sold me to those Ishmaelites to be a slave? Was that honesty? Or how about that time you went back to our dad and you gave him my robe with blood of some kind of animal and said, look, your son has been killed. Was that honesty? Honest men? I don't think so, Tim. I don't see any honesty in you. I think he, he was, I'm sure, just bubbling up with resentment to see his brothers claiming to be honest men. Now, I can't, I can't prove this. There's no way to know for sure. But I wonder if one of the reasons why he put them in jail for three days was to figure out what he, he was going to do with this beautiful opportunity he'd been given. I mean, he's, he's now got his brothers like trapped mice in a cage. And he's going, all right. You did all that to me 20 years ago. Now's my chance. What goes around comes around. God has delivered you into my hand. Now what am I going to do with you? It's incredible to see the providence of God work out. Joseph knew that God had delivered them over. In fact, even the brothers knew that God had delivered them over. Even though they didn't realize that's Joseph, they know that they're being treated roughly because they're getting what they deserve. What goes around comes around. You see it in the next few verses. Listen to how the brothers recognize this as divine justice. Moving on in verse 18, it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, listen to this, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there, there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts felled them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now stop there. So here they're being mistreated now by this man, the second in command of Egypt. And the first thing they think is, well, this is coming to us because of what we did to Joseph. We knew that was going to get us sooner or later. You can tell they're plagued with guilt from what they've done two decades ago to their brother Joseph. And they see it immediately. God is punishing us because of what we did to Joseph. In fact, I think Reuben states it perfectly. He says, now has come a reckoning for his blood. We're, got, we're having to pay for what we did wrong before, guys. That's what's going on. What goes around comes around and it has come upon us. And, and it's really interesting how they attribute this to God. So whenever they're traveling along and they see their, their bags filled with grain and one of them opens it and sees that his money is there, it says that they turned trembling to one another. Their hearts felled them. They were scared to death. Why? Because now it looks like they've stolen the grain. They take the grain, but they haven't paid for it. And now they look like criminals. And this dude is going to come get them when they come back with Benjamin to rescue Simeon. And they're scared to death. And what was their comment? What is this that God has done to us? They clearly see this as the hand of God. And in their mind, God is punishing them as retribution for what they've done to Joseph. And in, in a way, they're kind of right and they're kind of wrong. So absolutely, they're right. This is God's doing to them. God has orchestrated this and God has planned this. They're right about that part. But where they're wrong is that this was not God's retribution upon them. 
This was not God punishing them for the wrong they've done, going, now I'm going to stick it to you. They had, they had God all wrong in their minds, which, by the way, I think you and I, oftentimes, we think about God completely wrong. We don't, we don't even realize this. But a lot of times when we think about God, we think about God as this mean big brother who's just waiting to catch us, do us wrong, so he can smush our face in our wrongdoing, and he can punish us and smite us. And we look at God as this mean God, just ready to get us for the wrong that we've done. But that's not the God of the Bible. I mean, if you read this book, what you discover is that God does not delight in punishing us. God doesn't like when we suffer, but God knows that there is something inside of us killing us and that something is sin. And he knows that as long as that sin is inside of us and that sin is growing, that ultimately it will consume us just like it did those brothers. I mean, here they are, like I said, two decades later, and all they can think about is, well, this is what we get for the wrong that we've, it's been plaguing them for two decades that they did this to their brother Joseph. It was consuming them. And our sin will consume us too and plague us with guilt and shame day in and day out. And even worse than that, our sin will condemn us before the enemy and before the righteous judge himself. Sin will devour us and God knows it. And there are times that God allows us to suffer just so he can get our attention so that we'll change and we won't let sin consume us and condemn us. That's what I believe God is doing right here to the brothers. He's trying to open their eyes through this hardship to see their sin so he can be dealt with. But what you're going to discover, he's not just doing that to the brothers. He's doing it to the father of these brothers as well, to Jacob. If you keep reading, you're going to see Jacob enter into this discussion and into this turmoil. Let's keep on moving. Verse 29. It says, When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way and bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver you your brother, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? Listen to this. All this has come against me. Now stop there for a second. So Jacob now, their father, gets the devastating news about all that's happened and about their troubles in Egypt when they were just going there to buy a little bit of grain and he's overwhelmed by it. He's like, dude, my kids are dropping like flies. First is Joseph, then Simeon. Who's next? It's going to be Benjamin. And then he says something profound. He says, all this has come against me. The whole world is against me, he says. Now, there's some debate about exactly what that phrase means in Hebrew. But what I believe he's saying here is, man, what goes around comes around. The world is against me and it's attacking me because my sin is coming back to bite me. Because Jacob knew he was not the holiest of holies. Jacob knew his sordid past. Maybe he was thinking about the time when he was a kid and his, his twin brother Esau came in from the field famished and instead of feeding him, he stole his birthright from him. Or, or maybe he was thinking about the time he deceived his own dad and preyed upon his father's weakness and blindness and, and stole the blessing from Esau and robbed it from his own blind father. Maybe he was thinking about the time when he, he took away Laban's daughters and grandchildren from him at night when Laban was away. Didn't even let him say goodbye because he wanted to steal away. 
I mean, he had many of things, marks against him in his past. Who knows what was plaguing him, but there's a sense of guilt upon him. Like I've done so much wrong and now it's all come against me right now. I mean, he's recognizing that sooner or later, what goes around comes around. Sooner or later, he's going to reap what he sows. He's going to get what he deserves. His sin was catching up with him and he knew it. Now, I want to stop there for a second. I want to I ask you something. Do you realize that? Do you realize that sooner or later, your sin will catch up with you too? Because make no mistake about it. Whether you think you've committed big sins or just little bitty sins, sooner or later, your sin will catch up with you. I mean, you cannot live a, a selfish destructive lifestyle and think it's not going to wreck you at some point. There's only one end of a self-destructive life and that's self-destruction. It's going to end in brokenness and pain and misery. Sooner or later, your sins will come back to bite you, to devour you, to destroy you. And you got to wrestle with that and reckon with it. And one of the hardest parts about sin is that sin has the tenacity to spread, to move from one area to another area in your life. Now, it may start off small, but it'll spray. It may start off with one small little lie or, or one little cheat, uh, cheating on a test or something like that, but then it'll just grow. And it'll start to create a habit of lying. Where you start lying to your spouse, start lying to your children, start lying to your boss at work, start lying about your taxes. It, it begins to spread into other areas. You start deceiving people. You start mistreating people. Pride comes in. Anger comes in. And just bit by bit, sin will spread like cancer into every single area of your life. And here's what's cr so crazy about sin. Sin is a cancer that's contagious. It has a habit of jumping off of you and moving on to your children and your children's children. It becomes generational. It starts spreading to your friends and others. And, and this sin will begin to devour everything around you bit by bit by bit. Maybe you can think of it this way. I, I got here just some, uh, some matches. And, uh, and I, I want you to see just clearly what takes place when you light up one thing. I, I want you to see this is going to be an example of sin. So I mean, I think you can figure what will happen if I come over here and I light this one. It's just going to keep on spreading from match to match to match to match to match. Nothing's going to stop it because it'll go one to the next to the next to the next and combust the other. And you can see the trail of carnage it leaves behind. This right now is a picture of your life and my life. Every single bit of this. It started off just as one little sin, just that one little lie, and then it was the next and the next and the next and the next and the next. And now it was just you, but now it's your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And, and it was just you, and now it's your spouse and it's your friends and it's everybody else around you. And it was just a small little thing. And, and now it's, it's destroyed your work. It's destroyed your relationships. It's destroyed the very fabric of who you are. You are plagued by guilt and shame and brokenness. This is you. I mean, just stop and look back over here. There's nothing but char, and you, you get it. Nothing's going to stop it. This is the effect of sin. Ultimately, all that will be left is shards. So here's what I want you to wrestle with. If this is what sin is going to do to you, what are you going to do to stop sin? If this is how sin is going to devour you, what are you going to do to make a difference about it? To which I know some of you would go, well, dang, I don't, I don't want this in my life. I, I want to I be different. But, but Jason, where do I even start? Well, let me go ahead and tell you where you don't start. You don't start trying to solve your problems on your own, trying to stop your sin on your own, trying to make everything right on your own, although that will be your natural tendency. Every single human being naturally thinks that they can solve their own problems. And the first place you will always start 
is looking inside yourself going, okay, what can I change in my life? How can I adjust who I am? How can I fix the things that are broken? You'll want to look inside. But let me go ahead and let you in on a little secret. It's never going to work for you. You can't fix yourself because you're not strong enough to fix the cancer inside of you. Something outside of you has to do it. What you're going to see right here in this story, though, is that we always start inside. You're going to see it in Reuben, the oldest brother. And I want you to see how he, just like us, decides, no, I can fix this, Daddy. I can make this right. And you're going to see his daddy knows better. Let's finish up the chapter, verses 37 and 38. It says this. After, Joseph, after Jacob had said, no, I don't want to send Benjamin with you. Verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put them in my hands. I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So Reuben steps up and says, Daddy, I got this. Don't worry. I know there's been a lot of problems. I know we've had issues, Daddy, but I can solve this. Put me in. I got it. Just put him into my hands. I'll make sure he comes back safely. I got it. Reuben was totally confident that he could solve the problem. But his daddy, Jacob, knew that Reuben could talk the talk, but he couldn't walk the walk. <laughs> he says, I don't think so. I'm not letting Benjamin go with you. No, sir, no way. Because Jacob knew the heart of his son, Reuben. Jacob knew that Reuben was the one that had slept with Jacob's concubine. He knew that he was the one who had defiled him and defiled himself. He knew that inside Reuben's heart was still a lot of brokenness and sin, and he was not to be trusted. Now, Reuben might have thought he was good enough to make a difference, but his daddy knew better. And let me go ahead and tell you this as well. You may think you're good enough to make a difference, but your daddy knows better. You may think that you can handle this, you can stop your sin problem, you can fix the things that you've done wrong, but you can't, and your heavenly Father knows it. And there comes a moment where you and I have to come to grips with the fact that we cannot save ourselves. This sin inside of us is a cancer that spreads. Listen, if you've got cancer, you can't stop it on your own. You need to have surgery. You need to have someone else heal you. You need something outside of you to act upon you. Sin is the exact same way. It spreads from match to match to match, area to area to area. Unless something stands in the gap, unless something stops the spread, it will devour you. The same thing was true here in the life of Jacob and his sons. It was spreading from person to person to person, Reuben to Simeon to Levi, then to Judah after, before he repented. It was just, it was just going on and on and on until somebody stood in the gap. And that somebody was Joseph. Now, you probably missed it, but you saw a change in Joseph around verse 18. So here's what was going on. You got Joseph, and he's more than likely, he's, he's seeing his brothers for the first time. All these emotions are welling up inside of him. He doesn't know what to do. All he can think of is to throw them in prison for three days and figure out how he's going to get even with them. And he says, here's what you're going to do. You're all going to stay confined. One of you is going to go back and get your little brother Benjamin because he wants to make sure Benjamin's okay and bring him back. And then in verse 18, he says, wait a second. I got a different plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I've changed my mind. I'm going to let you all go except one. I'm just going to keep one of you. And that's just to ensure that you're going to come back with your little brother Benjamin. What he was doing here is he was showing incredible grace because those brothers deserved to be treated the way they had treated Joseph. They deserved to be incarcerated. They deserved to be enslaved. They deserved to be punished for what they've done wrong. And yet he doesn't do it. In fact, the only reason he kept Simeon 
was so that they would have an opportunity to prove that they had actually changed. They had claimed to be honest men. Now he's giving them a chance to be honest men by going home and bringing back Benjamin. Because Joseph knows that if they treat Benjamin with respect, they've genuinely changed. Because Benjamin, like I said earlier, was still receiving the the position of the favored child. And that was the very thing that had gotten Joseph in trouble. And the brothers that had done so much wrong against Joseph because he was a favored child. Now he's trying to see, will you repent? Will you change? Will you choose to treat Benjamin differently, even though he's the favored child, because your hearts have changed? Will you be honest men? He's actually giving them the great grace of a fresh start, a new opportunity to prove they can change. And what's so beautiful about this is ultimately this is going to be the turning point. Because he does not seek vengeance, even though vengeance was his, he actually creates the opportunity for full reconciliation to come to the family. You won't see it until next week, but he's going to create the place and the space where the spread of sin can stop. And it's such a beautiful picture of what Joseph is able to do. But it all comes back to verse 18. I want you to reread that verse with me again. It says, on the third day, and they've been three days in jail, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. See, the whole reason why Joseph changed his plan and chose to show grace instead of vengeance was out of his fear for God. Now, when you and I hear fear, oftentimes we think fear as in like, I'm afraid of you, God, but that's not the kind of fear he's talking about. In the Hebrew mind, that word fear means awe and reverence and respect and honor. So he's saying, out of reverence and respect for my God, out of my faith that my God can take vengeance way more than I can, in my trust in him, I don't have to seek vengeance for myself. I don't, I don't have to perpetuate this sin problem. I can stop and I can trust in my God. I fear my God and therefore I won't do it. And when he chose to, to trust and to fear God, that's when the chain was broken and sin no longer spread. It's the beauty of this story. But what I love about this particular story of Joseph is that it really just points to a much greater Joseph. It points to someone else who is going to come, who is going to be able to break the chain of sin. Someone else who is going to come that just like Joseph was going to be able to bring reconciliation to his very brothers who had attacked him and attempted to kill him. But this brother, they actually did kill and that brother's name was Jesus. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see an even better Joseph. You see a man who did not seek vengeance, though he was wrong. You see a man who feared his God enough, who said, though this is not my will, your will be done, not my will. Who was willing to go to a cross and die. You see a man, unlike Joseph, who was willing to take all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt upon himself so that he could break the chain. Maybe maybe you could think of it this way. So I got another set over here of matches, just like the first set. And you know, you you can light them. I can light up these matches and it's going to follow the exact same pattern. It's going to burn one after the other after the other. And you could watch these burn and nothing will change until somebody decides to be broken. And when you break these down, like Christ's body was broken, up until that point, Sin will spread the whole time. But when it gets to the broken body of Christ Jesus, sin has nowhere to go. It is consumed and it stops. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ's body was broken. 
Sin was spreading in our life. Sin was spreading generation to generation. Sin was spreading in our world. But Christ's body was broken. And because of the broken body of Christ, sin had nowhere to go. It was consumed in Jesus. That's the beauty of the message of the gospel. Look, these matches over here are unscathed, untouched, unaffected by the sin because Christ's body was broken. So my question for you is what are you going to trust in? Because you can try to be like Reuben and go, no, I got this, God. I know I've been sinning. I know I've done wrong, God, but I can fix this. I can change my ways. I can make things right. And you'll just keep on burning yourself. And this is what your life is going to look like. Or you can realize you need the broken body of Christ Jesus to stand in the gap and to stop the spread of sin. Are you going to trust in yourself? Or are you going to trust in Christ? Here's what I want you to hear. Nothing will change in your life until you place your faith in Jesus. He was the one broken so that he could absorb the wrath of God, so that the enemy could no longer condemn you, so the enemy could no longer consume you with guilt and shame from your past. God could erase all those sins. God could protect you from the sins of the future. God can make all things new for you if you place your faith in the broken body of Christ Jesus. So my question for you is what do you trust in? Listen, I think there's some of you watching this right now and you know sin is devouring your life. You can see it. You're trying so hard to change, but you just can't seem to make the change. You're never gonna be able to. You can try a million different ways. Nothing's gonna work. But Christ can heal you. Doesn't matter how deep the cancer of sin is inside of you. Christ can heal you if you'll turn to him in faith. And listen, you need to turn to him now. I'm so amazed that that there are people who recognize sin is devouring them. They know that Jesus is the solution, but they still don't turn to him. They're waiting for something else. I don't know, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe when I get my life more in order. But listen, if you had cancer inside of you and it was spreading all over you and you knew there was a, a solution, a way to be healed, you wouldn't wait for a week. You wouldn't wait for a second. You'd go to get healed. Well, it's no different. The longer you wait, the more sin devours you and the people around you. But Christ is ready to heal you today if you'll trust in him today. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're ready to find healing in Christ Jesus, if you're ready for the spread of sin to stop and to be made whole, then we want to partner with you. We want to pray with you. We want to minister to you. We just need to know what's going on in your life. And I know we can't be together right now in person, but here's what we can do. We can connect with you by phone or by email. So I'd love for you to do this. I want you just to get out your phone or if you're by a computer, go to the computer and go to feeler.org slash next step. Or you can text the word next step to 94253. And when you do that, it's going to take you to a really quick form. It's super easy to fill out. Just has some basic information. If you're watching this on your online campus, you just check that as a box. What language you prefer. You give us that you, maybe you want prayer for something. Maybe you're ready to place your faith in Christ, whatever it may be. And then you just give us name, phone number, email. And that's it. That's all you got to give us. And a pastor will reach out to you within a day and pray with you, and minister to you. But we need to know because healing needs to come today. And we want to partner with you and with the Lord to bring that healing to you. So please reach out to us. But listen, I also know there are many of you watching this. And the reason you're tuning in is because you're a follower of Jesus. You already know Christ. But let me make sure you understand this. Just because you prayed to Jesus to ask him to forgive you of your sins and to heal you, that doesn't mean sin is immediately eradicated. There's something called sanctification. That's the process of being made holy. 
which means that we have to go through treatments. We have to come back to our treatment. It means bend our knee before Christ over and over and over again because sin wants to jump right back in us and start spreading all over again. Good news of the scriptures. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That means that every single day we're given a brand new opportunity to confess our sins and to know that he'll forgive us and he'll cleanse us and he'll make us new. He'll heal us. So listen, maybe you're a believer right now and you need to say, Jesus, forgive me. Oh God, forgive me for what I've done. Heal me again. Don't let cancer, the cancer of sin spread in me again. Take it out of me. And he'll heal you over and over and over again. Listen, in a moment, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to sing a song. And we're going to sing the same song we sang before, Living Hope, that talks about how he, every chain has been broken because Christ is our hope. He's the one that stopped the spread. And we're going to worship him with that. But you may need to get on your knees. You may, right there in your living room or wherever you're, you may just need to get on your face and say, God, here's my sin. I repent. Forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for making these mistakes and he'll forgive you. Or maybe you need to text next step to 94253. Let us know. We want to reach out to you. But let God minister to you this morning. And after we're done worshiping with this song, I'll come back and I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Prepare yourself right now. Let's get ready to worship.